0: that you can't really get equality of outcomes without actually increasing inequality. And the reason for that is if you're going to micromanage outcomes and pick winners and losers, you need to give political authorities a lot of discretionary power to basically meddle with outcomes. How are they going to use that power? They're going to use it to enrich themselves, their friends, and their coalition. So the more that you try and push for equality of outcome, the less equal society becomes. What you can push for and what we should push for is equality with respect to governance procedures. Everyone has to follow the same rules and those rules should apply to citizens generally and equally. Again, that's just the rule of law. The rule of law, Mm -hmm. if you actually understand it, is a deeply egalitarian principle. The idea that nobody is a natural master over anybody else, that everybody has to follow the same rules, that everybody has to follow the same procedures, that there is nobody who is legally privileged over anybody else. That was one of the most important points advocated by Enlightenment liberalism political philosophy, which of course was one of the things animating the American Revolution. So you could say that our entire republic is founded on that idea of the rule of law. And so I, for one, would like to see a lot more being done to bring that back to American public affairs.
1: Can we use Tolkien's Ring of Power for good? On this episode of Liberty Curious, I sat down with Alex Salter, Georgie G. Snyder Associate Professor of Economics in the Rawls College of Business and the Comparative Economics Research Fellow with the Free Market Institute, both at Texas Tech University. We discussed rule of law, equality, the expansion of government, concentrations of power, and their socioeconomic effects. If you enjoy this podcast, make sure you subscribe on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you you listen to your podcasts and make sure to also check out AIR's new channel here. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's how it seems to go, right? Like the pendulum sways one side to the other. As soon as you can blame one political party, then you can vote for another. Um, But what kind of power and influence uh, do politicians actually have over the economy?
0: Less than we think. That is true, especially we exaggerate the importance that presidents have for the economy. Now, I want to be clear, the current administration, President Biden, has not done great things for the economy. His regulatory agenda, especially on energy, has been pretty destructive at a time when global energy prices are quite high. We really shouldn't be hampering domestic production. Ever since the shale revolution in the United States, that's actually been a great source of strength for us. So if you have, uh, when you have geopolitical tensions in Eastern Europe due to the war in Ukraine, when you have broader geopolitical considerations and economic considerations that are driving up the price of fossil fuels, there's really not a good argument for just hamstringing that sector and forcing American families to bear those costs. Now that said, that's a policy that affects a specific sector. I don't think it would be correct to lay this all at the feet of the president or all at the feet of the ongoing democratic party. Yes, they regulate too much. Yes, they spend too much all politicians really do. If you look at the structural features of the U.S. economy, I think that there are some deregulations that we could embrace, but a lot of that has to do with what's going on outside of electoral politics. Probably the biggest drag on economic growth in the United States today is due to the actions of the regulatory state, the administrative state. And of course, when it comes to inflation, which is hurting a lot of people, that's not something that politicians create, except indirectly, All that big COVID spending, the COVID checks indirectly created pressure on the central bank to monetize some of that debt. Money printing is ultimately where inflation comes from.
1: So when you're talking about the central bank, you're referring to the Fed. Uh, But what I was reading actually in one of your uh, recent pieces was that the Fed was never meant to be a central bank. So can you tell us a little bit about the history of the Federal Reserve, why it was put into place and Uh, why things derailed after that.
0: Yeah, that's a pretty interesting piece of history. When the advocates of the Federal Reserve Act, which was ultimately passed in 1913, were defending the Federal Reserve, they explicitly said, look, we're not looking to create a central bank. Americans understood what central banks were. They were sort of viewed as quasi-aristocratic European institutions, and we didn't like them. What the Fed was supposed to be was a quasi-public clearinghouse and banker's bank in the sense that it was supposed to help facilitate emergency liquidity transfers between banks in an era when the fastest method of communication was the telegraph. The United States banking system was notoriously unstable from the end of the Civil War until the passage of the Federal Reserve Act, largely for reasons of counterproductive regulations. This is not a market failure story. And the Federal Reserve was one of many proposals that were circulating in the early 20th century as a way of stabilizing the banking system. And so by embracing a quasi-public clearinghouse, the idea was we could shore up the strength of the banking system and basically escape these small-scale financial panics that we were having every 10 to 15 years, make our banking system look a lot stronger, like Canada's was at the time. Not a lot of people realize that for the vast majority of its history, our neighbors to the north have had a phenomenally stable and phenomenally successful banking system. And interestingly, one of the proposals that was on the table at the same time as the Fed was to try and make reforms to the U.S. banking system to make it look more like the Canadian system. Ultimately, the Fed won. It was supposed to have a limited role. Politics has a way of getting away from you, especially when the United States entered the First World War, the Federal Reserve started experimenting with the first of what we would now call proto-monetary policy powers, basically supporting the market for government debt to make sure that Uncle Sam could finance the war effort. And once you let that cat out of the bag, all of a sudden you have monetary policy, which is exactly what we weren't supposed to get with the Federal Reserve in the first place.
1: Yeah, well, I'm just speculating here, but that's what I've always found really interesting is that timeline. So you have the Federal Reserve, 1913, then you have World War I, and then you have World War II a couple of decades later, uh, you have FDR who decouples from the gold standard i guess and then it looks like the fed really does become a central bank Um, and they also they didn't bail out the banks right during the great depression which was what they were supposed to do
0: the federal reserve really did drop the ball during the great depression in the sense that they let the money supply get away from them the idea was the federal reserve was supposed to be a liquidity supplier of last resort to the system And a lot of economists will claim that it wasn't their fault, that they were constrained by the gold standard. Nonsense. If you look at the actual amount of gold that they had on hand, they could have discounted way way more notes than they actually did. They could have propped up the liquidity of the system much more than they did. They were overly cautious in terms of their activity. And because of that, the recession was much harder than it needed to be.
1: Hmm. Interesting. Um, So... So what do you think should be done now with the Fed? Like, how far do you think that they've strayed from their original mandate and and what could be done to correct it?
0: Oh, that's a great question. U.S. voters never really agreed to the Federal Reserve in its current form. It was just sort of mission creep over decades. And we've sort of uh, experienced it by... uh a fait accompli in the sense that we never really looked at this institution and said, yeah, you know, a monetary policymaker, a regulator, all these roles that we vest in the central bank, that sounds like a good idea. Congress did give the Fed a dual mandate in 1977 to maintain full employment and stable prices. So in that sense, you could say that the people's representatives sort of checked the institution, but really that just sort of just means that they're playing the hand that they were dealt. I think in order to get control over monetary policy and financial regulation, We need to bind the Fed much more tightly with actual rules. When Congress passed that dual mandate in 1977, they didn't specify what full employment meant or what stable prices meant. How much inflation constitutes stable prices? How low does unemployment have to be before it counts as full uh, full employment? We've basically let central bankers themselves, monetary policymakers themselves answer these questions. And so they've become a judge in their own cause. Well, surprisingly, whenever that happens, they investigate themselves and they find that they're doing their job just great. In fact, they deserve accolades and bonuses, right? That's how it always works. You never, ever, ever should allow people to be their own evaluators. So I would like to see Congress step in and reassert its power over the Fed by handing the Fed a concrete monetary policy target that the Fed cannot interpret or change or otherwise wiggle away from. And then there are, of course, uh, reforms to the regulatory mandate of the Fed as well. But just in terms of straight up monetary policy, I think that we need a much tighter leash, and that's going to help us get a rein on inflation.
1: And I think that you also wrote about just having one mandate, which would be about uh, monetary stability rather than the focus on employment. Is that accurate?
0: That's accurate. A lot of times in the commentary space, you'll hear this view that there's somehow a trade-off between unemployment and inflation. You can run the economy hot, in which case unemployment is low but inflation is high, or you can sort of uh, hit the brakes, in which case inflation will go down and unemployment will go up. That's not how it works. In reality, the amount of productive labor that an economy can use is determined by what economists call the supply side. It doesn't depend on monetary policy. It depends on labor, capital, natural resources, productive technology, and pro-market institutions. In the long run, you can have full employment with zero inflation, 2% inflation, you can even have it with 8% inflation. There's no real trade-off between inflation and unemployment. So given that, the Federal Reserve's job really should be stabilizing the purchasing power of the dollar, basically keeping economic purchasing power more or less constant, and if not constant, at least predictable, so we have a yardstick, so to speak, by which we can actually compare commercial values across time. That's not going to hurt labor markets. There's no reason that we need to fear that stabilizing the dollar is going to hurt in terms of causing unemployment to go up. That sort of old school Keynesian view that economists were in love with circa 1950 was smashingly disproved by the next 30 to 40 years of macroeconomic research. And really the only people who still believe in it, unfortunately, are in policy circles. Even uh, academic economists who would identify as center left or left wing don't think that there's a simple unemployment inflation trade-off. That's stone age macroeconomics.
1: Is that what you're describing? Is that the Phillips curve? That is the
0: Phillips curve, yes, that uh, unfortunately pernicious little concept that's done so much mischief.
1: Yeah, so um, so that's really interesting. I, I mean, that's kind of what we're seeing right now where there is inflation, but that uh, there aren't uh, less people working, right? Like that, that there's pretty much stability there. Um, so it seems that that is something that... Uh, is is an algorithm i guess that that is not really accurate but why do people hold on to it
0: it's one of those bad ideas that you can just never put to rest and i think that ultimately it retains its life in policy circles simply because it's a useful policy formula for justifying what politicians and regulators wanted to do anyway so mm. it sort of gives them a blank check to do what they wanted to do in the first place and sort of having an excuse Now, to the extent that there's anything to the Phillips curve, it's true that if the central bank runs unexpectedly loose monetary policy, it can temporarily fool the public into producing more output and taking more jobs. But that is purely temporary. As soon as people figure out that this is not due to economic fundamentals, but due to a funny money effect, what the central bank is doing, they're going to just raise their prices if they're producers, or they're just going to raise the wages that they demand if they're laborers. When everybody does that at the same time, guess what? That's inflation. So in the long run, even surprise monetary policy just causes higher prices without any sustainable increase in output or employment. We should really stop trying to goose the system and give it a stable foundation in the form of something like a price level target, which would stabilize the purchasing power of the dollar, or a nominal income target, which stabilizes what economists call aggregate demand. Either one of those, I think, would be a very good rule and would be a big improvement over what we have right now, which is essentially discretionary monetary policy according to the whims of central bankers, which are notoriously fickle and unpredictable.
1: But do you think that it's even possible to do these kind of reforms? Do you think that it would ever happen. Is it, is it likely at all that this happens?
0: Is it likely? I'll be perfectly honest with you. No, it's not likely that it happens, but if it is going to happen, I think it's going to need to happen soon. This is one of those times where the public has experienced again, a 40 year record high inflation and they're mad about it. Rightly so there was no good reason for it to happen. So hopefully elected officials in Washington can actually assemble a coalition to actually get serious reform to the Federal Reserve's mandate and what they are permitted and are not permitted to do. The question is, can it overcome the massive vested interests in the existing system, right? Because you have a typical concentrated benefits dispersed cost system. This reform, which would benefit millions and millions of people, disperses those benefits across the American public. But the existing system concentrates benefits on a small number of connected insiders, and they're going to fight like hell to make sure that no reform that potentially dissipates their privileges is going to get through. Can the fight be won? Yeah, I think it can. I think that if you get the right policymakers and the right people in the room to actually hash out a plan, that it could work and that it could command electoral support. Is it likely? No, it's not likely.
1: Well, it's funny because what you're describing here is that uh, the insiders would you know, be suffering a little bit maybe, um, but it would be better for the rest of people and would actually make things more equal in a sense, uh, go further towards the path of equality. But these insiders always talk about equality and they talk about justice and they talk about uh, basically these egalitarian solutions, right? But that's not really what they want, is it?
0: Regulators, policymakers, they talk a big game about equality, about egalitarianism, like you said, very progressive goals. In reality, what that means is they want more authority to do whatever they want and to use the justification of equality after the fact to say, this is why we did what we did. And that's not really a very good way of actually implementing equality. If you care about equality, one of the things that you have to care about is equality before the law. Which means that policymakers, politicians, all the people in Washington shouldn't be in a privileged position to make rules that the, all the rest of us have to follow without something constraining the kinds of things that they could do that make them accountable to us. This is not a radical insight. This is just the rule of law. right? The essential American contribution to political theory is the idea that not just citizens, but government itself has to follow the law. Everybody, private, public, citizen, government, has to play by the same rules. And at least when it comes to monetary policy, central bankers have played by a very different set of rules. In fact, they mostly get to make the rules in terms of determining what they actually do and the consequences of that. And that's really unacceptable from the perspective of small-D democratic decision-making.
1: Yeah. I know that you like to quote Milton Friedman. And um, I recall seeing a video where he schools a a university student, right, who asks him, well, why can't we... Why can't we aim for equality? What's the problem with that? You know, we need things to be more equal. What's the problem with aiming for equality? And Friedman basically says, I'm
2: not going to be able to give a full answer to your question, because you've asked a very, very complex question. And so you're going to have to pardon me if if I am a little dogmatic, but I only want to suggest that the statements I'm making are not without some thought and reason behind them. In my opinion, a society that aims for equality before liberty Will end up with neither equality nor liberty. And a society that aims first for liberty will not end up with equality, but it will end up with a closer approach to equality than any other kind of system that has ever been developed. Now, that conclusion is based both on evidence from history, across history, and also, I believe, on reasoning, which, if you try to follow through the implications of aiming first at equality, will become clear to you. You can only aim at equality by giving some people the right to take things from others. And what ultimately happens when you aim at equality is that A and B decide what C shall do for D, <laughs> except that they take a little bit of a commission off on the way.
1: want to get into that? Can you explain what I'm talking about here or what he was referring to?
0: Sure. It's a simple but profound argument, and I totally buy it. Freeman was saying there that you can't really get equality of outcomes without actually increasing inequality. And the reason for that is if you're going to micromanage outcomes and pick winners and losers, you need to give political authorities a lot of discretionary power to basically meddle with outcomes. How are they going to use that power? they're going to use it to enrich themselves, their friends, and their coalition. So the more that you try and push for equality of outcome, the less equal society becomes. What you can push for and what we should push for is equality with respect to governance procedures. Everyone has to follow the same rules and those rules should apply to citizens generally and equally. Again, that's just the rule of law. The rule of law Mm -hmm. if you actually understand it is a deeply egalitarian principle the idea that nobody is a natural master over anybody else that everybody has to follow the same rules that everybody has to follow the same procedures that there is nobody who is legally privileged over anybody else that was one of the most important points advocated by enlightenment liberalism political philosophy which of course was one of the things animating the american revolution So you could say that our entire republic is founded on that idea of the rule of law. And so I for one would like to see a lot more being done to bring that back to American public affairs.
1: So Alex, why do you think that rule of law has disintegrated in America? What happened there in your opinion?
0: Oh goodness, that's a complicated question. A series of crises whereby every reason that we've given for departing from the rule of law had a seemingly good reason. This emergency came up, we can't just stand back and do nothing the Great Depression, World War II, Korean War, Vietnam, Great Inflation. Every single time that something comes up by whereby we quote-unquote have to do something, there's always a reason whereby we put stable and predictable rules to the wayside and start engaging in extraordinary policies. Well, the more you do that, the harder it becomes over time to actually get back to a genuine rules-based framework. Uh, An economic historian, Robert Higgs, wrote convincingly about what's called the ratchet effect in American economic history. With every crisis, government gets bigger and more discretionary. And after the crisis passes, you do see some shrinkage, some reversion back to normal, but never fully. So government is permanently larger and permanently more discretionary. And so we basically saddled ourselves with a larger and more arbitrary government over decades, and we don't really have any way of unwinding that process So the exigencies of the moment basically push us in a direction which looked at from the citizens' perspective over the long term is deeply destructive, right? Not just in terms of economic outcomes, which it is, but in terms of the basic civic norms of our republic.
1: Yeah, you know what? I just pulled up a a quote here. I don't know if you've ever read the book Darkness at Noon by Arthur Koestler. It's a very good book, and when you're talking about the second factor here, which is basically that uh, the value system of humanity starts to suffer as well, he really ties this in with what you're talking about. So I'll just read it to you, and I'd love to hear what you think. He said, There are only two concepts of human ethics, and they are polar opposites. One is Christian humanitarian and declares that the individual is sacred and maintains that no calculations be done with blood. The other is based on the principle that the collective goal justifies the means and this not only allows but requires that the individual be subordinated to the collective in every way, including as a guinea pig or sacrificial lamb. And then here's to your point what he wrote, in a crisis, and politics is one permanent crisis, those in power could always declare a state of emergency to justify exceptional measures. For as long as there have been nations and classes, they live in a state of mutual self-defense, which constantly forces them to postpone their humanistic program to some later date.
0: A lot of good stuff there. I think I agree with the basic premise, right? I am also a Christian, by the way, so I like the shout out to Christian humanism. But I do agree that there's this idea about, at the heart of liberalism, that the person is a repository of moral value such that you can't basically make persons means to your own ends. Persons are ends in themselves. And while persons can agree amongst themselves to make undertake collective action to achieve some shared purpose, it is not okay for them to engage in collective action for the purposes of exploiting the people on the next town over or the people over the river, right? Those quote unquote foreigners we don't like, so we want to go beat them up and take their stuff. Unfortunately, that's 99% of human political history. Every now and then something truly extraordinary happens and we uh, we listen to the better angels of our nature, but we constantly have to fight this rearguard action against power and for liberty. And that seems to be the great struggle. And unfortunately, lately, it's not been going so well.
1: So do you think that the American founding is an example of a time where, you know, things actually were done in such a way that benefited Individual liberty.
0: That's a really good question. I sometimes have mixed opinions about the American founding because, in addition to being a staunch liberal, I'm also kind of an anti-revolutionary. I just don't think that armed insurrections against governments are are a great way of actually getting lasting liberal reforms. If you look at the track record of revolutions, they actually have like a really bad performance record. Most of them don't go the way of the American Revolution. Most of them go the way of the French Revolution or the Russian Revolution. So I think that a lot of fortuitous circumstance went into the American Revolution turning out the way that it did. And I'm very happy that it did. And of course, there are problems with respect to the universal uh, declarations of human rights that underlie, for example, the Declaration of Independence. While at the same time, you had rules on the books that basically forbade women from owning property independently and participating in commercial society. And of course, slavery was an abomination with which we compromised, even in the framing of the constitution. So there are tensions here. There are tensions here that still need to be worked out, which is why I don't think that we can actually view the American Republic as a one and done thing. The liberty towards which we're striving is something that we always have to work to increasingly realize. So... I think that as we point to measures and say that things look bad now compared to how they were before, we also need to realize the very real progress that was made for other social groups and other social classes that even at the time of the American Revolution were marginalized.
1: That's a really interesting nuanced answer, and I I didn't necessarily expect it. So thank you for uh, being forthcoming in that way. And, and I think that that's a good way to look at things as well, especially given that many people do have a problem with the American founding, right? Like you have people who talk about the 1619 Project um, who are, essentially, they have a different view of history. They have a different view of how things came to be. Um, and I think that, you know, Phil Magnus has done great work in providing a rebuttal. Um, but but there needs to be dialogue there, a nuanced dialogue, rather than just dismissing that other people feel so strongly uh, about this, what they see as the injustice that formed America.
0: Phil's done great work on this, and if you actually read his work on the 1619 Project, he's very clear that in places what they're actually saying has merit. The project is not completely bunk. What the project tries to do is reorient everything about America about slavery, which doesn't work based on the primary sources that we have. There's just no historical justification that you can change the quote unquote founding of the United States to the uh, importation of the institution of slavery into the new world. That just is not going to follow and plenty of plenty of credentialed historians have been saying the same thing we do know based on the researches that were done based on the documents that were current at the time at the time of the american revolution that this idea of universal liberty was a serious animator behind the independence movement but of course it wasn't the only force on the ground in addition to ideals there were interests there was political calculation And yes, the embracing of uh, the founders embracing of this universalist idea of human rights did sit in tension with some of their other social practices. That's absolutely not in dispute. So we can admit that and talk about the work that we still have to do without saying that it's always been about 100% exploitation. It's always been about 100% just the justifying the interests of the strong and the privileged, because that's just a nonsensical interpretation of the historical record.
1: Yeah. So you talk about exploitation here, and typically people who are on the left or further along the left, uh, they will see everything about exploitation. So that includes systemic racism, that includes climate justice now, um, that includes big greedy corporations. And, you know, I could see why. We see that, you know, corporations often are monopolies and they have immense power. And so then when you have the Inflation Reduction Act come in and say, well, we're gonna tax these corporations 15% and that's going to control inflation, that's going to fix everything. Of course, that presents some kind of solution that people can buy into, but I have the feeling that that solution might be flawed. Um, I don't know if you agree or disagree, or can can you get into that a little bit?
0: It's very hard to combat power by creating additional concentrations of power. Corporations are strong. Social institutions that might be oppressive are strong. You know who's stronger? A government is a government because they have a monopoly on the initiation of force over some geographic territory. And they have overwhelming coercive power on their side. And any solution to promoting liberty that basically comes by saying, let's strengthen the government and have them sort it out. American Politics 101 kind of tells you, well, okay, the natural next question is, who will guard the guardians? That's at the heart of our constitutional tradition. And so there's a lot of old wisdom that's being lost. There may be well-meaning people who are trying to undo wrongs and right wrongs that they perceive in America's history. But ultimately, they're empowering the entity that has more ability than any other organization that we deal with to oppress us. That's not a sustainable solution for human liberty.
1: So what is a sustainable solution for human liberty, according to Alex Salter?
0: (laughs) That's, again, big questions. I like this. The sustainable solution to human liberty is to lower the stakes of politics. One of the reasons that things have gotten so inflamed lately is because we've vested, especially the national government, with so much authority that the stakes of who wins our daily, yearly, whatever political contests are so high. We're getting to the point now where the rhetoric is saying that pretty much every election is the most important election in the world. Now, I don't think that that's actually true, but there's a kernel of truth in it because the stakes of politics right now are higher than they have been in a very long time. What we have is a clash of worldviews where they're taking place in the political arena and what basically amounts to a winner takes all tournament. That's not a recipe for social peace. When the populace is constantly riled up, when people are constantly mad at each other, when people are constantly fearful, you're not going to get liberty and respect for human dignity. You're just going to alternate. You talked about the pendulum before. You're just going to alternate who has the reins of power and who's going to use it to beat home. That's absolutely not the way that we want to go if we're serious about liberty and dignity. There needs to be a collective embracing of not trying to solve our problems using politics. We need to actually get back to civil society, which once upon a time was actually a really important thing in the United States. Right There's that old uh, quip from Tocqueville that the first thing that Ameri- if you get three Americans together in a room, the very first thing they do is elect your treasurer. This idea that, they, that we're very civically spirited and we want to form voluntary organizations to solve all these problems. And once upon a time, that was great. They actually made real progress in providing services that now we think can only be provided by the government. We need to reacquire the spirit of self-governance that we had early on in the Republic and basically say, look, I know we have problems. I know that there are things that need to be solved, but getting Washington involved is going to make things worse and raise the stakes of politics. Besides, that's not good for anyone. The president was elected based on his promise to, quote, lower the temperature, unquote, in politics, and he's done the exact opposite. So I think that the idea was good. We actually need to go out and do it.
1: Well, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I was speaking with Samuel Gregg about this, and basically how you have the left that were typically looking at somebody to kind of manage them, bigger government, you know, more intervention, and then in the '80s you had the right who were basically pro free market. Uh, they were for less tariffs, less intervention more liberty, smaller government, Uh, but he expresses in his uh, book, The Next American Economy, how this is changing now and that the political right have become economic nationalists, a lot of them, and people are arguing that you need more intervention so it's like you're having these two budding heads these two budding political heads like the right and the left who are saying well I have all of the answers just give give me the power give me the wand give me you know that that magic stick that I can just wave and uh, I'll fix it on my
0: side there is unfortunately a lot of that going on And what you have people on the new right who are embracing strong government, what they're saying is basically, look, we've tried Reaganism, we've tried free market policies for 40 years, we haven't really done anything to dislodge the left from the halls of power and the bureaucracy and the executive agencies, All we've really done is weaken ourselves. So if we want a society that respects our values, our only choice now is to ante up and get back in the game. We've got to take over these agencies. We've got to fight fire using fire and basically wield the power of the state to advance small c conservative goals. There's a certain logic to that, but at the same time, you're basically saying you want to declare a political war of all against all. How do you think that that's gonna go for you? How do you think that that's going to work when every single election is a referendum on the direction that washington is going to come down on just perpetually for the next two to six years or whatever there's going to be no civic peace there there's going to be no civic friendship there there's no going to be any way that we can get along what we need to figure out is a way to actually agree to disagree which means figuring out ways to get washington to do less in general while also devolving power, decision-making authority, to more local political units, the states, local communities, because that's going to give people the option to embrace local living conditions that they feel reflect their values, and then at least people can pick their communities based on those values. So that's sort of an intermediate solution based on federalism, which the old right, the 1980s right, was big on, but the new right is not very, uh, not very optimistic about. I mean, they're calling themselves national conservatives for a reason.
1: Right, right. Um, So why do you think that is? I know that Sam has his own hypothesis, but why do you think that the political right has gone in that direction?
0: The charitable answer is just what I mentioned before. They've basically seen the strategy that was embraced since the Reagan era as not having worked, and so they're trying something else. I do wonder sometimes whether there's more to it than that, whether people just are really amped up about seizing the reins of power and using them to advance this kind of society that they want. And yeah. I understand the temptation, but again, once you wear the ring of power, things never go the same again.
1: This is so funny that you said that because I was literally just thinking about J.R.R. Tolkien, Lord of the Rings, and I was thinking about in the in the first film, actually, that scene where I think it's Faramir, he takes the ring from Frodo, right? Because he wants to be able to use it to rule. And you know, he, he you see that the power corrupts him uh, right away, and he kind of becomes a little bit evil. You know, of course, it's done in a sensational way to, to show you uh, mm. right in your face what that could look like. But that's exactly what I was thinking of. So I guess the issue is, how do we how do we promote these ideas to people, to show them that you can't have this this uh, one, mass of of power that will rule everything uh, in a way that will be benevolent that it will always turn for the worse. like what can we do to to show people that they can have faith in in basically ruling themselves
0: i think the thing to do is just keep on making the point about basic american political theory public choice economics we have the tools in our toolkit right if you go back and read the founding documents if you go back and read the federalist papers Heck, if you go back and read the Anti-Federalist papers, there's a lot of stuff in our founding tradition that's making these exact same arguments. And a lot of those predictions have almost eerily come true. So we need to realize that this is not something foreign to the American political tradition that we're talking about. This is the American political tradition itself. We've been outside the operating envelope for decades now. What we need to do is actually pick up the user's manual and figure out how we get back to regular order. And I think that it's going to be persuasive to people if we can make the argument like this is not something radical and untried. This is the way that things used to work for the most part. We have a precedent in American history and we can do that. We can actually do that. A lot of people might think it's counterproductive that we actually have to bind Washington's hands to actually make sure that we get more liberty for everybody. But if you look at what Washington's been doing for the past 10, 20, 30 years, maybe that's not so strange because it's not been great.
2: Rights violations
0: here, trampling on liberty there. A lot of the new stuff that Uncle Sam does is, frankly, harmful to individual liberty as well as the common good. So I think that we need to get, for humanistic civic purposes, an agenda behind the idea that we're going to simply solve fewer of our problems using politics. And that's ultimately what the rule of law is about, to try and take those politically exploitative options off the table. Make it less important who actually wins the election.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, this makes sense as well, because when you look at just, you know, the COVID response and you look at lockdowns and you look at the trampling of of liberty and rights for all, um, you could see that there are people on the left and the right, you know, who have kind of combined forces and, and they both think about things the same way. They're basically anti-government now, you know, they just hate the government. Um, and that's why I do find that it's funny that at the same time that they hate the government, they think that if they vote for the right person, that the problem will be solved. So is that is it also about, um, you know, maybe showing people that that they can have faith in the complex order of things that is not controlled technocratically because we've become so used to this technocratic control like can we can we show people again like what hayek called the cosmos and how things actually have a natural order that works
0: i hope so i don't think that inculcating a reflexive habit of anti-government attitudes in the public is the way to go here because almost always what that results in is a decrease in civic trust which makes us nastier more, am- more willing to fight with each other. And of mm-hmm. course, what it amounts to in practice is nobody hates the government entirely. They hate half of it, right? So when you, when you try and instill a hatred of government, what that really means is hatred for one half of the political spectrum. So in other words, in trying to solve the problem, you're directly contributing to the problem. You're making it worse. Government has a place in the American social fabric. Government has a role. The idea is not to categorically oppose it, but make sure that it stays within its proper operating envelope, to make sure it stays within its proper bounds, to actually do the jobs that we need it to do. If you look at the founding political tradition, the federal government really isn't supposed to do all that much. Most of the governing that people care about is supposed to happen at the state capitol or city hall or somewhere in between. It's really pretty strange that we care much more about who our congressperson is than who our state representative is. And that we care much more about who the president is than who the governor is. I think in a healthy political system, those things would be flipped. And so I think that rather than just going rah-rah anti-government smash the state, what we need to do is reorient our political efforts to those communities where we can actually pursue a substantive vision of the common good while also embracing liberty which is just a fancy way of saying federalism. We have the tools within the tradition to actually answer these questions. And that's why it's so frustrating that we just sort of leave them in the toolbox rather than picking them up and putting them to work.
1: So I'm gonna throw kind of a curveball at you here. And this one is a little bit more personal for you, okay? Okay, here we go. (laughs) All right, so I don't know if you're familiar with Carl Jung or if you've read any of his work. No. Okay. So uh, in his book that he wrote post-World War II, I believe it's The Undiscovered Self, he basically talks about, and he talks about this throughout his career, why it is that, you know, humans tend to deify the state. and, And he really links that to the loss of the relationship with God, both at a collective level and at an individual level. And so therefore that void that used to be filled with that relationship with God is now uh, filled with the state. And so when you were talking about how people tend to really look towards their congressman or towards the president or towards these people that are higher and higher up on, on the echelons, Maybe that's what's happening, is that maybe they're looking at these figures, these public figures almost as, as gods or as demigods or as people who, can, uh, who have this great power over them um, also psychologically and maybe even spiritually. What do you think?
0: That's an interesting point. I'm not sure I'd go so far as to say that people deify these figures, but I do think there's something to the thesis that with the collapse in traditional religion, You're not going to get people simply stop worshiping. It's in human nature to venerate authority and worship. So they're simply going to transfer that to some other source. Maybe that's politics. Maybe that's the self. There's going to be some other ultimate good that people orient their lives towards. And I don't think that that's going to be particularly healthy. I do think that one of the reasons that we care so much about politics is because we've sort of exaggerated the importance of politics. We've regarded it as an existential struggle as a basic reflection on the kinds of society we are, as well as the kind of people that we are. Really the healthy way to view politics is ways of finding compromise so that we can all live together in relative peace. It's okay to view politics largely as horse trading. There's nothing grubby or, or demeaning about that. It's what politics is when things are working well. It's what politics looks like when the stakes are low. You shouldn't have this existential triumphal, you know, good versus evil narrative Every second of every day going on in the public square It should be the mundane business of, you know, are we going to build this bridge? And if we do, who's going to pay for it? What constituencies is that going to anger? What side deals do we need to strike to make it happen? Politics should be boring. Politics should be boring because ultimately it's nowhere near among the most important things in life. And I worry that with the replacement of other more basic values we've given to politics an importance, which it frankly doesn't deserve and is bad for us when we give it to it.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great answer. And I mean, maybe this is why you also see on the conservative right uh, that are uh, also Christian, that they tend to want to sometimes impose their morality, um, like you were describing before, how they feel like, you know, the left has taken over all these institutions, but they've also morally kind of taken over. Like we see this through all of these kinds of radical ideologies that are going on. So, Um, maybe they think that the way to do that is not just in public discourse or in private conversations uh, at the dinner table, but rather in using the power of the state to also impose a morality.
0: I think what both sides think is that the public square necessarily cannot be neutral. It's going to reflect some set of values. And given that it has to reflect some set of values, we might as well make sure that it's ours, or at least we had better make sure that it's ours. And of course, if that's your basic orientation to the way that the public square has to be set up, that the way that our communities have to relate to each other, you are naturally going to embrace a view of politics that is inherently warlike. There's no way for politics to be productive collective action in that world. It's necessarily friend versus enemy, right? We basically got to take up the cudgel of the state and smash our enemies. And then when that's done, we can have nice things. Well, the problem is it never gets done. It never gets done. And so what you just have is this perpetual war of all against all that makes people nasty to each other.
1: So do you think that things are going to get worse before they get better? Or do you think that things are going to start getting better now?
0: Probably worse before they get better, if I'm being perfectly honest. I wish I could say that I'm optimistic, but I don't see how we get ourselves out of the pit that we've currently dug ourselves in, in terms of the vitriol and the political process. It's not just a matter of how much we disagree on policy. If that were it, we could find a compromised solution to various policy disagreements that we have. I do worry sometimes that citizens are starting to view people who disagree with them as non citizens morally, the sense that we're not actually members of the same body politic. That, you know, if I'm a right winger, for example, I view left wingers as an infiltration. Into the body politic, or if I'm a left winger, I view a right winger as an illegitimate illegitimate participant in democratic decision making, and ultimately, we have to find a way to kick those people out. It's not a way to go if you actually want to get politics productive and under control.
1: Yeah, I actually um, spoke with some people, you know, in a group setting at some point uh, that that really shocked me and surprised me because they like and i didn't really know that that sentiment existed i was kind of naive right and they said well we have to use the same tools like we can use violence we can use propaganda we can use all of these things just so that this morality of the left doesn't win out and i thought that that was so shocking and um i have a friend though who has a great way of looking at things how he describes it is that there are three groups of people but each group thinks that there's two groups and so you have you know the political right and you have the political left and then you have the people who are basically individualists and who who look at things more like authoritarianism versus individualism or versus individual rights but the political right and the political left only think that it's them and you know they're very tribal and then the third group is kind of like well wait you guys are both looking like authoritarians right now, you know, we need to come back here. And so uh, he could describe that, you know, perhaps better than I could, but do you get the gist of what I'm saying?
0: I think so. And I think that there's something to that. Um, One caution that I would raise is that just because we don't want to find our community in the political system doesn't mean that we're against community. There are lots of people who you might call individualists in that system who are actually thoroughgoing communitarians It's just that the form of community that they embrace are forms like church and civil society and family. Those are authentic human communities, right? And I, for one, actually think that we realize our highest good in community. I would call myself more of a personalist than an individualist. Mm. But on this broader point, what we actually realize is when we're talking about the abuses of political power in terms of trampling on rights, that's only one way that we can look at the problem. Right. We talk about you shouldn't use the political process to hurt people because that violates the rights of the people that you hurt. And that's true. But an entirely neglected feature of this way of looking at the problem is you are also doing something bad to yourself. If you are the public agent, the political actor who's actually facilitating those abuses, Right? think about what you're doing to your soul. If I can use if I can use that word on this yeah. podcast, think about what you're yeah, doing to course. your virtue. Think about what you're doing to yourself as a person when you use these tools to oppress your fellow man you're actually turning yourself into a worse nastier version of yourself and oftentimes we lose that when we talk about solely the rights that are being violated by the political process in terms of other people we should absolutely keep that in mind right that's a valid part of the conversation there's a reason that it's so that it's so common but we also need to realize maybe we need to get limits on the political process to protect the to protect the well-being of the people in power Because if they're constantly in a position where they're wielding power to hurt people, to violate their rights, they're doing terrible things to themselves, right? And one of the things that we have to realize is that if the human person deserves respect, you yourself are a person and you are not respecting yourself when you use power to oppress other people. You're doing something hideous to yourself equally in a way that you're doing something hideous to others.
1: Yeah, that's really, really well said, Alex. And, you know, I mean, that kind of... uh, traces back to the idea of self-interest, you know, which we used to associate with individualism. And and you're right in pointing out that it's it doesn't sound, uh, it, it doesn't mean what it sounds like, individualism. What I mean by it is basically what you're describing, somebody who's self-interested. And that means that you don't do things to abuse other people because you're also harming yourself at the same time. And so self-interest, um, the meaning of that word perhaps has changed. Like you might look at these, you know, politicians or bureaucrats who are power hungry and say they're just self-interested, but they're not really self-interested. They're actually harming themselves. So they're self-destructive, I think.
0: You have to wonder if you spend your whole life working for power, trying to acquire power over other people, is there any self there to be interested? Right? your self is just a mask. There's no there there. There's no you. There's just the people that you're trying to control.
1: Yeah, that is a that is a scary thing to to fathom. But I think that you're absolutely right, um, and so maybe that's why also people have a hard time uh, to understand. Uh, that the political system, you know, just growing and growing and, and these people being granted more and more power will not solve their problems because you're going to have people who are turned away from their humanity, in a sense, who are running the show.
0: More and more, it seems that that's the case. And it would be great if we could find a way to take a step back from that, uh, from that cliff.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, I do think that, you know, things like these kinds of conversations and having these kinds of conversations at the dinner table with your friends and your family, and not just talking about other people or talking about a, a good movie that you watched, which are good conversations too sometimes, but but talking about these 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 kind of profound issues that we have, these existential issues uh, is a way to, to change the culture, you know, from, from the bottom up and allow people to start thinking about these things again and talking about them again freely uh, is maybe a way to, to incite change.
0: I hope so. That would be a wonderful thing if we could do it.
1: <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if you're seeming optimistic about it,
0: but... <laughs> it's not so much optimism or pessimism. It's, it's the very real and correct recognition that that's the place that we have to start. And I think that we should stop worrying so much about whether it's going to work or not and just do it because that's what we have to do. That's the task that's yes. in front of us. If it works, great. Yes. If it doesn't, we gave it a shot.
1: Yeah, no, I think that that makes sense. Um, it's it's having your life anchored in meaning in a sense. Yes. Yeah. Well, listen, this has been a really great discussion. Um, we started off talking about inflation and now we've ended up all the way here, which is actually which is really perfect because I think that, um, you have a lot of insight on these issues. Um, is there, is there any kind of last thoughts that you'd like to leave with our audience today?
0: Last thoughts to leave with the audience? I guess I'll leave you with two. Milton Friedman was right about inflation. (laughs) Care less about politics for your own good. Both of those things seem like good messages, good messages to leave the public with.
1: Yeah, I think that's wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Alex Salter. And you can check out Alex's work at AIER.org. Um, thank you so much for being here today and hope to have you on again soon.
0: Absolutely, Kate. Thank you.
1: All right. So that's that's fantastic. What do you think? Good stuff.
0: Yeah, had yeah. fun. It was a good conversation.
1: <laughs> yeah, same here. Thank you so much. I didn't know I didn't know that it would go that way, but I think it was good to just try it Neither did I. I. I was pretty
0: surprised like 40 minutes in. I'm like, this isn't inflation. Are we talking about inflation? <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. This is these uh, these basic questions. It really is all on a spectrum, right? The whole reason that you care about what's going on with prices is because you care about what's going on with society, which because you care about what's going on with people. So it's not like yeah. they're not connected.
1: Yeah. Well, that's exactly it. And I do think that that's sometimes what people care about because they. they